welcome to Coming Out the Pod with me, Ed Connell, the podcast where members of the LGBTQ community share their coming out stories with me. This week's guest is Dr. Dan O'Hare. Dan's a doctor of educational psychology as well as a lecturer at Bristol University. Dan talks about growing up as a teenager in South London, of the negative way in which gays were portrayed in the media, until finally identifying with the character John Paul in Hollyoaks. He recounts his experience of coming out to his parents when he experienced heartbreak for the first time, and how he never experienced any negativity from coming out to friends and family. He also talks about his insight into sexuality from his professional perspective. Dan, I want to introduce you first of all. You're actually Dr. Dan O'Hare, um, and you're a doctor of, is it psychology or educational psychology? Educational psychology. And in broad terms, what does an educational psychologist do? <laughs> yeah, that's a question that lots of people ask. Um, broad terms. Okay, so we work with uh, children, teachers, parents, uh, whole schools, um, really in a capacity really to, one of my colleagues talks about is enhancing the learning and well-being of children and young people. Um, so that is that is a really broad definition, as, as you can imagine, that covers a lot of ground. Um, we work with children and young people from 0 to 25, um, so it's quite a broad age range. Um, and really, where there are needs around children's learning, their development, perhaps their well-being, or you know, maybe they're experiencing anxiety, or you know, the, the, the type and range of children we, we work with and for can be, you know, a child who's really struggling to learn to read right through to a child who's, you know, experiencing really severe depression or anxiety. Um, and we would work kind of with the whole system around the child. So what I mean by that is, you know, we wouldn't necessarily just work one-to-one with a young person. We would also look to sort of understand, well, what are the parents and carers' views here? How you know? How do they understand what's going on? What are the teachers' views? How is school supporting them? What other systems around them are helping? So, yeah, that's a that's kind of a broad introduction to to educational psychology. And how did you end up as an educational psychologist? Was that a long term plan, or is it something you kind of drifted into? Uh, I think talking to colleagues, maybe it was long term in the. I kind of decided it was what I wanted to do when I was about 17. Um, and that was uh, because my, I, I got introduced to it through my sixth form psychology teacher who was talking about wanting to do educational psychology. So kind of explored it from there. Before then, I wanted to be a, a fighter jet pilot, um, which I don't know how that fits with my current worldview. But um, yeah. Uh, so yeah no from about the age of 17 and then sort of you know did psychology at a level uh did it at university had various work experiences in um primary schools uh schools pupil referral units and what i mean by that are schools um that usually have on their role children who have been permanently excluded from school um so worked there as i say did psychology as a degree um, went off and worked for an audio company, an audio technology company for a couple of years and realized, no, I actually definitely do want to do educational psychology and then trained at the University of Bristol. Um, and yeah, then became an educational psychologist. And, do you, and you still lecture at the University of Bristol, is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, so I work as an educational psychologist uh, three days a week for uh, a local authority in the southwest. And I'm a lecturer at the University of Bristol for two days a week. Um, but then alongside that... Um, so uh, the, the professional body for psychologists is the British Psychological Society. And that society has a number of different sort of divisions for different applied psychology. So educational psychology is one of those. And at the moment, I'm co-chair elect of the Division of Education and Child Psychology. So that's with my colleague Mel. She's, she's my other co-chair. And we're really kind of about the, the profession of educational psychology and the professional interests of educational psychologists, I think. And I know that from looking at your Twitter feed, um, certainly recently, that it seems as though at least some of your study at university and, and some of your work now touches upon a little bit the issues that we're talking about today, sort of um, sexuality. Um, and I'm going to ask you about those later on, if that's right. But I'd like to go back, if I can, just to sort of contextualise for people a little bit about you so they can understand your coming out story. You, you're how old now, Dan? So I'm 32. And you... Grew, grew up in South East London. Yeah. So 
Yeah, grew up in South East London. Went to went to secondary school in Peckham, um, which yeah, that was great. So I'm I'm from Lewisham, um, and yeah, went to a, a Catholic primary school, a Catholic secondary school, Catholic sixth form college, um, and then left London and and then went to the University of Surrey in Guildford. Um, so yeah, that's a very sort of a very inner city, uh, multicultural, very diverse schooling and, and upbringing with a, with a coming from an Irish family as well with a, a tint of, of Catholicism in there. Well, I was going to ask you about the Catholicism. Is that, um, you know, a big feature of your growing up? Was it, your family sort of strongly Catholic? Um, hmm, uh, waves, maybe, maybe peaks and troughs of, of family being strongly Catholic. Uh, certainly not my dad, no, not at all, but yeah, my mum uh kind of yeah probably more so um but i think i was strongly catholic for a for a while definitely sort of between i'd say between sort of 12 and 15 very very into into going to church and perhaps you know taking myself off to church two or three times a week um and you know doing the whole confession communion confirmation then at age 14 and yeah very much into sort of i suppose that that I don't know. I, yeah, I suppose that that community um, and and having that sense of of religion. What's the word? Religios religiosity. Um, and in terms of the family, you also talked about mum and dad. Uh, were there any other siblings at all? Where do you fit into the sort of family? Yeah, so I'm the oldest of three boys. So I'm 32. My middle brother, God, what age is he? Three years younger, 29. And then the the younger brother is. 22 so yeah 10 10 year age gap between uh me and my younger brother who who affectionately realizes that he was probably not planned um with a 10 year gap between the oldest and the youngest but yeah the oldest oh, being the oldest always comes with its own challenges and and uh issues and benefits as well obviously um, so. I, I think it definitely has its benefits i suffer from middle child syndrome which is also oh no <laughs> a very valid uh, complaint and uh, i think i definitely came worst off out of the uh the my brother sister and myself but uh can you i mean you obviously you are a, a openly gay man but do you remember when you first realized or thought that you might be gay Gosh, that is a really interesting question because it's really hard to look back with that label and, and the understanding that sort of one has now to, to look back on, on retrospective experiences. And, and I suppose there are experiences where now with my knowledge and insight and self-awareness, I can say, oh yeah, that was definitely, you know, X, Y, Z. But at the time, you know, not even having the language to think about sort of no, I don't mean, I don't mean sort of, I suppose I'm thinking about more mental experiences, you know, thoughts about different things and, and, you know, not having the language or, or the, the understanding that there was this other thing called, you know, gay or, or, or it was, it was possible to, to have a relationship that wasn't heterosexual. So, you know, there might be very, you know, very early memories of, of, of kind of a, you know, being a, being a young boy and thinking, you know, wanting like a like a, a fraternal relationship with like a friend like oh I really wish that person was my brother or something or you know something really sort of a misunderstanding of of you know oh they're a friend but I kind of really like them and 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 how and the only other model of closeness I had of two males was siblings so you know that's 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 something I ref, I've reflected on with friends in the past about how that notion of like uh, a sibling relationship was the only other template or model of a male-male relationship that I'd previously experienced. So, you know, those sorts of thoughts that I look back now and I think, oh, that was just me thinking, oh, I really like this person. Yeah, they were probably, I can remember those around sort of age six, five or six, um, you know, and, and it's not something obviously at the time I would have thought, you know, oh, well, this means I like guys. <laughs> you know, it was just a, it was a very, it was a young child's attempt at trying to, put feelings and thoughts about a friendship in a different frame and not having any frame of reference to do that. You, you, you'll perhaps be relieved to know that you're not uh, alone in that sort of experience. And a, a, a lot of the people I've spoken to have had similar things in where they say, now I look back and realise now that, you know, 
that obviously was related to my sexuality, although at the time I didn't appreciate that. So when, when do you think you did develop the understanding that that what meant that you were or might be gay? Yeah, probably, probably 14 or 15, I think. Um, when the first kind of light bulb moment, you know, sort of, uh, happened. Um, but certainly a light bulb moment that was then followed by, no, 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 no. This is, this is not, this is a phase, you know, this is, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to have girlfriends and I'm going to get married and, you know, all this sort of stuff that, that, that at the time was not available as a possibility. Um, again, because there wasn't really any template of, of, of for this to make sense and and that was certainly a very sort of a sudden realization of oh I think I I think I'm actually looking at guys I'm not looking at you know I'm not looking at girls and then a very sort of sh- shutting down of that thought process or not so much shutting down but accepting it and then moving on like okay that's that's okay but obviously I'm straight so let's carry on um so yeah probably about late maybe late 14 early 15 how did you view sort of gay people and, and how would, you know, your, your friends have viewed gay people back when you were sort of 14, 15 at school? Would, would that have been something which people would have found, you know, a cool thing? Would they have been receptive to it? Or, you know, how, what would have the reaction been? Mm. So how viewing, viewing gay people at that age was, was, was purely through TV, right? Like, you know, there, there, wasn't, there wasn't Facebook, there wasn't social media, um it would have been you know my mum was a big fan of the soaps so you know my my understanding of 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 being gay would have been through emmerdale or eastenders or coronation street you know what was that character todd from coronation street maybe yeah Yeah, like you know and so my my understanding of 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 what it might mean to be gay was very much about you know all the the horrible traumatic stories that come with being gay in soaps in the late 90s early 2000s you know you couldn't live a normal life you had to i don't know you had to get aids or your your partner had to like cheat on you all the time or you know all these devastating storylines that was kind of you know the exposure to uh, on the other side of that though there was certainly a sense for me of there is this thing about you know gayness but it's it's it was a very stereotypical um, and very prejudiced view of, of of what it meant to be gay. So you know, very very effeminate or camp, and and w- with the understanding that that was a negative thing. You know that, that that's you you shouldn't be like that, and that's that's abnormal. You know, these I suppose this is how it, this is how it would have been presented. Um, so you know, the sort of things you know, it's it's all about short shorts and pride and you know sort of gay clubs and gay nights and high sex and all this sort of stuff that that would have come you know where would it have come from i don't know the the, the newspapers um you know the sun was in the house when i was younger so probably that you know that that newspaper um just a very sort of narrow view of 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 gay life so on the one hand you've got these soap characters and on the other hand you've got this very stereotyped uh, presentation of, of what it meant to be to be gay so yeah that's how I suppose I would have under, un, understood it and you asked the second question but I've forgotten what it was well I mean I was just going to say you, you think you had it bad you want to try growing up in as a teenager in the late 80s early 90s oh, yeah. with all the negativity and not even the positivity of having gay characters on tv I mean it was pretty bad but um yeah I mean, I mean it was groundbreaking wasn't it you know when the soaps did these great gay characters i i do remember it being in the sun for example with a very you know very much a sense of this is outrageous you know there it's seven thirty at night there could be children watching this and you know it's, it, it was it was definitely sort of perceived as groundbreaking but in terms of the question you asked in terms of like what would the what was it like in school yeah you, this was you know as I'm sure many young people have experienced previously and probably to some extent do, well, you know, yeah, probably do experience today as well. It was a, you know, it was very, very taboo. You know, nobody was, nobody was gay at all. Um, and it was, you know, I'm just thinking about, I'm just thinking about the language. So obviously, you know, gay was frequently used as an insult, you know, to, to, to denigrate and to sort of, um, you know, call people up when you, you disagreed with them. 
you know, batty boy was a, was a phrase that was used a lot, you know, and you knew from a young age that that was a, not a good thing. Um, and yeah, anything remotely. So I went to an all boys school in Peckham. Um, and as you, yeah, you can kind of imagine like hyper masculinity, teenage boys all trying to, <laughs> you know, all trying to like out masculine the others. Um, you know, it was, it, it, yeah, it certainly, not that I was ready at the time or even really sort of understanding that that's, that's, you know, that's who I was, but it certainly wasn't as a, as an all boys Catholic school in Peckham. It certainly wasn't on reflection, a place where I, I felt not for myself, but others, there was no diversity of sexuality at all. You know, the assumption was everyone's heterosexual, um, and I suppose that was an assumption across the board. And so you, you say you sort of had some of those light bulb moments at 14, 15 about that, that you might be gay. I mean, do you, can you look back and pinpoint a time when you sort of came to the conclusion that you knew you were gay and that, that was it? Yeah, I suppose it wouldn't have been till I was about 18 um, when I moved out of home and started university. So my first year of, of university stereotypically you know new independence discovering yourself living away from home all that sort of stuff freedom um and yeah just a really interestingly actually and <laughs> i'm kind of cringing as i talk about this really interestingly really coming to terms of it and and understanding when it was the hollyoak storyline with john paul um now his storyline kind of felt like it mirrored my life at the time and you know massively identified with this character who obviously at the time I just kind of thought oh he's really good looking as well um that didn't that you know that didn't hurt, hurt the, the the sense of connection um but yeah I would say that would have been oh, probably probably spring 2007 so early 2007 I think I think that makes me 18 yeah um and yeah, when that storyline... So John Paul was a character in Hollyoaks who was coming to terms with the fact that he was in love with his best friend um, or, you know, maybe he thought he was in love with his best friend and, and then that was coming to terms with the fact that he was gay. And, yeah, that, that storyline totally hooked. You know, I remember... <laughs> oh, gosh, I remember multiple times, like, just having a little cry... <laughs> Oh, I laugh now, having a little cry watching the uh, watching the, the the different episodes and thinking this is me, <laughs> you know, sort of eighteen year old, uh, hyper emotional, self pitying. Uh, but yeah, that that would be the time. Um, and around the same time, you know, it was the first time that I'd had sort of you know high speed internet and you know and 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 a lot of alone time. You know, my my brothers and I, my two brothers and I, and my parents, we grew up in a two bedroom flat you know so there's five of us in a two-bedroom flat in in southeast london and you know moving to university and having my own room uh, you know at the same time as having internet for me uh you know sort of talking talking to people on chat rooms and you know kind of just trying to understand what what it was that i was feeling and thinking and whether other people like this and and i think that's you know i suppose now i'm shifting into like a more professional mode you know we all that that need to belong is 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 one of these fundamental human needs, and I suppose that's what I was was doing when I was on chat rooms at, when I started university. You know, trying to find out where do I belong and who do who do I belong with. You know, I kind of feel very alone and, and trying to seek out that connection. So, yeah, that's that that would have been that that point in time where I thought, yep, I'm I'm gay. <laughs> do you remember the first person you told that you were gay? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I told, um, the first person was my, uh, best friend at university. Um, and gosh, but how did I actually tell her? I can't remember. I think I, I think it was, so we used to watch, um, so I used to be in her, her room all the time watching TV. We would, you know, we would watch, I was forced to watch Neighbours. I don't like Neighbours. You know, we would watch films, we'd watch Hollyoaks, we, you know, we'd, we'd like eat, eat dinner all the time so we were really really good friends and I and and that was the first person I told um and yeah I think I just think I was just watching we were probably actually watching Hollyoaks <laughs> at like 5 30 or something on a weekday evening and I think I just said 
something like, oh, that's, that's like me, um, which, you know, we had a lot of bants, which is just, you know, which is not, just, just not back as like, oh, he's talking, you know, he's talking shit, like what, you know, but then I, you know, have, no, no, I mean, John Paul is just like me. Um, so having a real reticence to even say it, you know, like just trying to euphemize the whole disclosure of, of or the whole coming out sort of sentence. Um, and yeah, and that evening, I remember we went to Pizza Express to celebrate. <laughs> so there are other there are other pizza restaurants available, but we went to Pizza Express to celebrate. And uh, the waiter was really hot, and I ended up stupidly tipping five pounds. <laughs> so yeah, I was clearly in a euphoric state of mind of like, I've told someone, let me tip this hot waiter five pounds. Five pounds to just bring a pizza to the table. Like that's an awful yeah. lot of money for a student. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, and. Do you remember how far into your first year you were when that happened? I'm assuming it was your first year. It was my first year, yeah. I think it would have probably been around April. So quite quite far into my first year. You, you know, considering the uni term finishes in like June sometime. Yeah. Quite far into to that first term. It was definitely before before like summer exams. So yeah, it would have been around end of March, April of, of my first year at university. And did... When you told her that day, uh, you know, had that been sort of your plan for a while or did it just kind of happen or? I just think it kind of happened. Yeah, I, yeah, it, I, it wasn't a, yeah, I don't think it was a plan. I suppose, I suppose in, in my mind there was that sense of, well, if, if that's it, that's it, you know. There was definitely a sense of, of loss for, because again, you, you know, where was the template for what a, for what it's like to be gay as you grow up, you know, or, or you know, there wasn't one that necessarily I felt fitted for me. So there was a sense of loss at the time of what wasn't to be, you know, what, you know, what wasn't to be was, and, and maybe this was a hint when, from when I was really young, but, you know, I was planning out my wedding suit. I was planning out the venue in my mind, you know, the colors, you know, all that sort of stuff. So yeah, there was a sense of loss for what wouldn't be. And, you know, that's, I find that really interesting now. Um, but no, there wasn't a plan to necessarily go out and tell, you know, today I'm going to, you know, tell this person in this way, you know, next week I'm going to tell this person in this way. So that was the first person. And then, then I suppose after that, there were a couple of people. So on, I lived on the floor with 14 others, uh, 13 others. There were 14 of us on the floor. So I told, told my best friend first, um, and then there were a couple of other girls I told after that. Interestingly, all female for the initial sort of, uh, I wonder if that's common as well. I don't know. Yeah, I think um, it is. I think that women are just perceived as being a, a more receptive gender in terms of disc- making those sorts of disclosure and you're sort of more likely to get a, or certainly perceived you can get a, a sort of more positive response and certainly not a negative one anyway. Mm, um, yeah, there was certainly a worry of, of, of you know, losing male friends, Um and as I came, as I came to find out, like that worry was was kind of reinforced by this idea, and and I say reinforced because actually it's what some straight male friends had said back to me, you know that that I'm gonna fancy them or hit on them or stuff, as if as if like the key the key factor for attraction is just being male, um, and you know and and then and then yet simultaneously finding it super hard to believe that no believe it or not i do not find you attractive at all um your maleness is not the only requirement you know so yeah really weird dynamic of oh well you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna hit on me it's like, okay well, number one what if i do number two just no like ugh, that sort of response and yeah so there are a couple of of, of girlfriends that i i told uh, you know within the next maybe month um yeah so but but very very stressful each time you know like i definitely remember that sense of of anxiety you know the adrenaline pumping that that anxiety physiological response kicking in um for no reason you know no no evidence previous to say that these this person would react negatively but i suppose that's the weight of of the societal message yeah it's difficult i mean i i i understand that completely and i i never had a single bad reaction to anybody I told that I was no. gay, but it didn't make the coming out on each and every occasion any less difficult because I don't know it was just so built up in my mind that it was mm. going to be a problem. 
um, mm. although ultimately never was. Did you ever get any bad reactions from any sort of your friendship group at university at all? No, no, none at all. I, I'm very privileged in that regard. Um, I, I obviously appreciate, you know, working with some young, young, some children and young people in my job who, you know, who are, if not exploring sexuality, they are saying, you know, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm trans, I'm bisexual, I'm pansexual, you know, all these sorts of words that young people I've worked with have used. I appreciate that not every young person is in that privileged position to not have negative reactions. You know, one of my jobs was, I was a youth worker for a, specifically working in an LGBT um, youth group. Uh, so that was probably when I was in my third and fourth year at university. Um, and those young people had had terribly negative reactions in all sorts of quarters of their life. So, so no, personally, I'm really aware of my own privilege of not having those negative reactions and actually lots of people being very accepting, very open, very excited, um, you know, very knowing, you know, like, oh, yeah, thought so <laughs> you know that sort of that sort of reaction which is, is a double-edged sword really isn't it you know because it, it's just because someone else thinks so doesn't mean it, it reduces the intensity of feeling for the individual who's who's coming out in that in that instance so yeah no very privileged not to have not to have any negative reactions at all ever actually so that's sort of university friends I mean were you still friends with people from school and do you still have friends from home or, or not I had I certainly had friends from sixth form. Um, so secondary school, I can't say I particularly enjoyed secondary school. Um, you know, in terms of my perception would be that I was bullied in secondary school, um, and I suppose maybe that's the perception that matters. Um, so I didn't have any. I didn't carry. Well, no, that's not true because some of my friends from sixth form are friends that I met at secondary school. Um, but interestingly, in my mind, I don't see them as friends from secondary school. I see them as friends from college. So despite the fact that I, I met them and knew them from, from secondary school. So, yeah, I suppose at university, I did still have friends from secondary and sixth form. Um, they, yeah, again, sort of just telling them face to face when, you know, when we met up or when I was back in London for Christmas or Easter or summer or whatever it might be. Um, and And again, being really aware of finding it much more difficult to tell the male friends, you know, to tell guys that that's, that was me. Um, and I think actually probably saying it over the internet to a couple of them, you know, cause perhaps that feels safer and a more distant, not, not safe. I don't mean I would not, have, I would have felt unsafe, but safer emotionally, you know, psychologically. Um, but yeah, again, no, not, not, no negative reactions. What about family? Who was the first family member that you told? The first family member would have been my mum. So, yeah, told her in uh, in floods of tears when my first relationship ended. Um, <laughs> so, you know, obviously, first relationship, absolutely devastated that this this was this was ending after only like two months, might I add, something like that. I think, you know, I think we'd probably actually only like met together like seven times or something but you know this like first first love at the time and you know yeah that relationship had ended and I think I was I think it was the next morning I, I was working in a primary school at the time and, and living at home and the next morning I think I I was washing up I was washing the dishes so that was something obvious something obviously was wrong because why the hell is Dan washing the dishes um and yeah, I think I was washing the dishes, having a cry. And my mom sort of came into the kitchen, was chatting to me. And I sort of attempted to reply in a very sort of non-emotional way. But, you know, your mom knows when you're upset. So, yeah, I remember going upstairs to my mom and dad's bedroom. Where she was like, oh, you know, that was like one of the only private places in the house. And we sat on the bed and she was like, you know, what's the matter? What's the matter? And I remember saying very obliquely that, oh, the, you know, that the, I'm, I don't know, I'm not, can't remember I've broken up with the person I love or something like that and you know and I kind of in on reflection my mum's like yeah because <laughs> I'm not putting any gender in here or I'm not saying any names and you know oh, the person I love is a guy okay um do you know what I'm telling you <laughs> you know crying crying yeah okay right um and I think I don't know at the time whether there were any questions. I don't even know if there were questions like, you know, some of those, I don't know, maybe it's mean to classify them like this, but like silly questions like, 
when did you know you were gay? You know, uh, what, you know, I don't think there were any of those. I think there was just a lot of empathy about a breakup is really hard, you know? Um, and, and I remember my mum saying, you should probably tell your father, um, who was downstairs, you know, having a smoke and a cup of tea or something. Um, and yeah, he came up and was sort of saying, and you know, my mum went downstairs. He was like, well, you know, Northern, Northern, Belfast, Northern Irish guy, you know, what's the matter with you? <laughs> sort of like, you know, Oh, I, you know, and I just said the same thing, same lines. And I, I distinctly remember his response being, you know, well, there's plenty more fish in the sea, you know, you know, it's just sort of very, very sort of him. Um, and yeah, that was kind of it. And then I had to go to work. I literally had to go to work. So I was like, I'm going to be late. I've got to go. Uh, and that was, yeah, that was it. That was the first time sort of telling them. So that, God, that would have been, that would have been probably July of, after my first year at university. So probably three three four months after I told the first person so now I remember thinking actually well now it's true it's true I'm just going to tell people so yeah my parents didn't know though obviously while I was in this relationship and they had actually met this person um but it was just a friend and we were just like we're just chilling out you know we're just uh we're just uh we're just gonna watch a film all that sort of stuff and yeah that was yeah that was it that was that but their reaction sounds sort of you know perfect really not making a, a thing of it you know just accepting it as being sort of very normal and a way that you know it's, it's just a relationship break break up and and not sort of focusing on the sexuality element and I don't suppose you could really ask for much more could you no I don't think so I think I was probably surprised um which is probably quite insulting for my parents you know they might think that is insulting but you know um my how do I explain it my dad <laughs> he uh Okay, so he likes banter um, and is very vocal with his thoughts and is definitely not the most PC person at all. So, you know, I probably remember, you know, he would make inappropriate comments, but it wouldn't be inappropriate comments about being gay or gay people. He'd make inappropriate comments about everyone. You know, it, it wasn't just targeted at people on TV programs who were gay or something, you know. So I'm trying to not make him sound like, like he's awful. Um, but I suppose, you know, when you're thinking about these things and your brain hooks on to those sort of things that you, you might have encountered in the past, and I suppose in my mind, those, those, you know, those very normal things for him to say with regards to anyone, you know, were hooked in my mind as like, oh, this is what he thinks, this is what he feels and stuff. So, yeah, I suppose there was a lot of expectation there. Uh, but interestingly, you know, going back to the point about Catholicism, that never really crossed my mind at all. You know, I, I suppose I knew, and and I suppose there's that, you know, there was, you know, the sanctity of marriage and marriage between a man and woman and stuff. But when I was getting confirmed, oh, what was his name? The priest's name, Father Michael, I think his name was. He was a really young priest. Like he was maybe at the time he was even in his late twenties or early thirties, and he was like. You know, we, I think as a group of, you know, when I was getting confirmed in my confirmation group, we were all like maybe 14 years old. And he was a really cool guy, you know, like one of our confirmation weekends, we went paintballing, you know, we, we, we just, we went to sort of McDonald's and stuff. And it was, it was, it was a really good community experience. And, and, and I'm pretty sure this point was brought up in like the, one of the, one of the weekend confirmation sessions. And, and, and I'm, I kind of remember his focus being on about like just his focus being on love and connection and belonging and that being the key thing. Um, so, so yeah, maybe because of, of that experience with, 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 with father Michael, you know, it wasn't, I didn't necessarily have this looming, you know, sort of tower of Catholicism over me or this, this sort of looming wrathful God. It was more of a sort of a, a message of community spirit, love, you know, that sort of stuff. So I suppose that might be one of the reasons why actually I was never sort of like, oh gosh, you know, I didn't have a religious crisis or anything. Yeah. I mean, that's unfortunately different from my experience because I was sort of the other end of things really. I was sort of doing the, uh, taking the confirmation classes, you know, and I mm. was, you know, very much involved in sort of running the youth group. And mm. there was that whole association sort of late 80s, early 90s of sort of associating certainly the media, the idea of sort of gays being paedophiles, that sort of stuff. And there was just yeah, a lot yeah. of negativity around it. And I, and I knew that the moment I came out that I would have to sort of 
end my connection with the church for all sorts of reasons, not not just because of that, but that you know it, the message still being preached then was very much about mm. you know relationships between men and women and 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 being gay being wrong, and so I think for me the Catholicism part delayed my coming out um, regrettably, and it's a shame that I didn't have a sort of more um, you know liberal approach that you know Father Michael appeared to have had with, with you mm. and your confirmation group. Yeah, and I think that 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 yeah, that is, it's. I mean, it sounds really difficult. It sounds like a really challenging experience, and and you know that that feeling of loss, I suppose, you know, in terms of community and connection and role and identity, and yeah. And I was very much embedded in that, and it was a huge part of me, um, mm. and I didn't want to give that up. Um, and I, I, you know, it might sound strange to some people, but I enjoyed being part of that community. I enjoyed actually going to mass. I mean, it was a, yeah. a positive aspect of my life, but it also brought with it, unfortunately, some difficulties in so far as my sexuality was concerned that, you know, caused me quite a bit of angst at the time. Mm. I wonder if, I wonder if the diff, if, if like part of my experience was that by the time I got there at sort of 18, 19, I had distanced myself for a number of reasons from religion primarily sort of um and I think you know I always joke that like oh, I actually found psychology instead and you know sort of the 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 hope of of people and a sort of a more humanistic approach and I suppose I suppose I had I had separated myself from so uh, you know I think around age 16 I kind of when I started reading philosophy and reading psychology I kind of thought this makes much more sense you know in a very in a very naive way at the time I was thinking this makes much more sense than what I've learned through religion and you know being going to a succession of catholic schools and colleges we we didn't learn about other religions we didn't learn about history and how you know the connections between other religions and and you know sort of we didn't learn why christmas day is on christmas day or why easter is when it is you know it's for all you all you learn is that easter is when jesus came back from the dead right you don't, you don't learn that it's i don't know two weeks after the vernal equinox or whatever to fit in with you know the history of our country and and sort of other religions so yeah i suppose by the time i'd come to accepting it in myself i wasn't involved in 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 church or or, or religion at all so that maybe in that sense that was that's why another reason why that wasn't necessarily there. And just before I ask you about um, your work and the bits of your work that maybe touch upon this topic, your, your brothers, obviously you had a brother slightly younger than you. So when you came out, he was yeah. 16. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Your youngest brother, of course, would have then been, well, significantly younger, wouldn't he have been what, still? Six. Oh, yeah. no, nine, nine. Yeah, nine. Nine. Yeah. So when, did, when and how did they find out? I think my parents told them, um, or certainly my middle brother. I think my, I think my mum or dad told him. Um, for my younger brother, I just think it was then a part, a normal part of his understanding of me. Um, so you know, after the devastating end of my my first love, you know, I think and then having another relationship, and I suppose I. I suppose I started another relationship quite quickly after that. And that, that, I think that lasted sort of four and a half, five years or something. And so, so from the age of nine, I suppose he would have, because then I would have introduced that, that person to my parents and, and, you know, he would have been at the house. And, you know, so I think, I think my younger brother is just a, that's just what it is. You know, it's not, there isn't a need to tell because that it just is. Turning just to your work, uh, lastly, um, I mean, I know that recently you did a, a lecture, which from what I could see, or a webinar of sorts, and I sort of saw that that touched upon the issue of sexuality. And I think your dissertation at university was something to do with the, the experience, was it, of teenagers coming out of school? Yeah, the, uh, my, my first dissertation at Surrey was about the trying to kind of try to focus on the positive school experiences of um, young people who identified as, as gay. So it was three, three young men, I think they were... They were, they were all over 16 because of ethics. So sort of looking back at their, their experiences in school or college because two of them were, were still in college at the time. So obviously a very small sample. Um, but it was, I suppose, the key thing for me was to look at the positive experiences because much of the psychological literature 
talked about really sort of depressing experiences of being young and gay. So, you know, alienation from family, alienation from friends, experience of anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, you know, attempted suicide, uh, drug abuse, you know, lots of this story and it, within the psychological literature. And there's a, there's a, there's a researcher, Sarvin Williams, who says, I think he says something like looking at the clinical literature, one would be amazed that any same, se- uh, any same sex attracted young person grows up to, into adulthood. Um, just because the, 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 the supposed outcomes or prognosis was awful. Um, and, and that really kind of didn't resonate with what I was seeing in the youth group that I was working in. So although these young people had experienced some quite negative events in their lives, they were still experiencing really cool things at school and they were demonstrating quite, quite incredible uh, resilience in, in the face of some quite significant adversity. Um, and what I now know to understand as sort of like a shift in paradigm from the risk paradigm, which is where about, you know, where we think about how, how at risk people are because of certain events to more of a resilience paradigm. So how their, how their experiences of adversity can, can lead to resilience and lead to success and, and actually doing okay. It's not about, you know, being a superstar. It's about being fine in, in the face of adversity or being able to recover and bounce back from it. So yeah, my research looked at the positive experiences that they had in school and it was really fascinating. They proved themselves to be real experts at sort of navigating the dilemmas that school throwed up for them. So, you know, that might be attending a Catholic college as one of them did. Um, it might be being in a lesson where, you know, all the boys got a pink piece of paper and all the girls got a blue piece of paper and they were asked to write their perfect partner. You know, I can't imagine, I, I can't imagine this stuff happening now, but you know, sort of this very, this very heteronormative school experience and, and them really understanding that that wasn't okay. And it didn't, it, you know, it wasn't meeting their needs at all. Um, and they were really reflective about the ways that they sought support for themselves, that they sought advice with, a, with an understanding that sometimes it wasn't the best way. So, you know, one of the young people really reflected on turning to the internet and some of the risky situations that they put themselves in. Um, but a real self-aware reflection, not, you know, not a flippant sort of, oh yeah, and this happened, you know, a real sense of, but if information had been available to me in other ways, i.e. through school or through the adults I trust in school, I wouldn't have had, I wouldn't have needed to put myself in these situations to find out things that I wanted to find out. Um, so it was a real privilege to talk to, talk to them, the three, the three that were involved. Um, and yeah, so I, 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 the reason I did the webinar recently was that, um, I did that dissertation 10 years ago and actually some of the findings in it are still really relevant today. Um, so the idea of, you know, this, this idea of like a coming out imperative. So what I mean by that is the, is the notion that, you know, the healthy homosexual is one who comes out and, and actually in some situations it might be quite, uh, quite advantageous to stay in. Um, and, and that that's not an unhealthy choice. That choice might make perfect sense within the, a situation or environment that a young person finds themselves in. And I mean, you sound like you're pretty well placed given your research and your work to, to say whether, I mean, it sounds what you said, we're, we're not doing enough as educators to address that sort of, you know, heteronormative approach to teaching, but, but I mean, are, are things improving? Are they getting better? Yeah, I really think so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, definitely. So there's some there's some outstanding work out there, isn't there? There's Andrew Moffat, who's done the No Outsiders um, project, which started in the Midlands, um, which is broadly around diversity and inclusion. Um, you know, I suppose like another one of you know, is what it says on the tin it is about No Outsiders and, and the 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 value of having a diverse community. And um, I mean that 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 project worked is incredible. Um, you know, when I when I go to schools and when school staff have asked me or have, have asked the educational psychology service to become involved because a young person might be experiencing anxiety or distress, um, and if it is related to sexuality or gender, I have only encountered supportive school staff who just want to do the best for this young person, so who want to be able to, you know, help them really develop their sense of identity or who want to help them be able to connect with other young people who might be going through the same experiences um, or who want to support the family. So, you know, my, my experiences in, in working with schools where, 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 you know, issues of sexuality or gender have been raised have 
have been very positive. Um, but I know from colleagues that that's not always the case. And But I think that's on a more individual level, you know, individual adults having a, a particular view about sexuality or, you know, whether whether children should or shouldn't be talking to young people. Um, but, you know, I think the government probably has some way to go. Uh, so last year sometime, uh, an educational psychologist colleague and I responded to a consultation um, that the government put out around the new PSHE curriculum. Um, and we really s- strongly argued against LGBT issues being highlighted as just one separate paragraph, as if that doesn't fit into the entirety of personal, social and health education. Um, it was really weird to read this document about the PSHE curriculum that talked about relationships and families and consent and, and belonging and friendships and love and you know sexual health and all this sort of stuff but then have LGBT considerations in one separate paragraph. It's kind of like, what does that say? It, it, it still gives across that impression that this is like a special interest or an additional consideration rather than really fully integrated into the statutory guidance for the delivery of this curriculum. So although things I think are much better, there are still structures and systems in place which act to other the experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender questioning children and young people um and and it's that othering that i think is really problematic particularly when it's in the guise of for example a statutory guidance for for school curriculum and that i mean that experience just makes it abundantly clear that there is still quite a considerable way to go before we make our learning environments welcoming for all lgbt students i mean it sounds as though there's still quite a bit to be done and um, I suppose the fact that there are still problems probably explains why your work is still so important in helping out young people who are, you know, struggling with sexuality and having very adverse reactions as a consequence. Yeah, and I think it's about centering those young people. So, you know, some of the most, I think some of the most inspiring work I've come across since doing that dissertation and working in that youth group has been work that has been led by young people in their schools and in their communities uh, in terms of them being in the role of expert and being able to say to their their school leaders or their head teachers or their senior leaders you know what's currently on offer isn't good enough and it isn't good enough for these reasons and this is why so i think i think certainly young people are feeling hopefully more able to have these conversations um but but you're right as you say you know it's I suppose the question is then should it be young people needing to have these conversations you know should these should these support mechanisms and and conversations and and, and sort of experiences just be there already um because I think it, it it goes back to that sense of you know probably you know often what I hear from other friends who who are, are gay you know that they knew that something was different from when they were really young um but they didn't know how to talk about it they didn't have the language and I think that's the key thing about how do we give children the language to understand the experiences that they might be having? Um, and and any, any sort of, any avoidance of the real lived experiences of, of people is, is, is going to not equip them with that language. If we don't talk about what it's like to have a, a relationship, you know, what it's like for a guy to have a relationship with another guy or, uh, you, know, you know, what it's like to, to, to be attracted to many genders. If we don't give children that language, I think they're still at a barrier of having that sense of not understanding themselves, never mind understanding the world around them in that sense. I want to finish, Dan, by asking you the two questions I ask of all the people I've been interviewing. Um, okay. I suspect the first question will be very easy for you. Um, first question is, if you were to have your time again and to, you know, the, the whole coming out experience all over again, uh, what, if anything, would you do differently, do you think? Yeah, I probably, I probably wouldn't wait until I was in floods of devastated tears. You know, it would have been nice to just say, um, um, but I think that's probably more of a societal problem than it was a parental problem. Um, but in terms of like, how the actual experience went as you said there's not there's not much i really could have asked for you know that my my parents are more focused on me being really upset that my relationship had broken down and you know that that was the more important issue at the time and i really and you know i am definitely thankful for the fact that because i'm sure they experience loss as well you know you have a view of the child don't you and and most often that view is that your child is heterosexual and all the potential futures that can flow from that. So I appreciate that, you know, there would have been 
a sense of confusion or loss, or even if it was just confirming what they probably thought. Um, but the fact that they focused on the main issue that day, rather than centering their own problems or issues or thoughts or questions was, yeah, it was really, I, I suppose I wish I had trusted more before that, that circumstance. And, and the last question is, I, I've asked all the people I've interviewed, do you have any advice or sort of words of wisdom for anybody going through the process at the moment of contemplating coming out uh, that you'd like to share? Wow. I suppose it's about, it's really hard, isn't it? It's hard with hindsight to say this, but you, you, you are not alone. Um, you, you know, I think one of the most painful emotional and psychological experiences that not just young people, but anyone can have is feeling alone and feeling isolated. Um, that's not what we're designed to be. I think we have, as, as Baumeister said, we have a fundamental human need to belong or to connect and, and it would just be trying to encourage connection. So whether that is with a friend or whether that's with a family member or an adult that's working with you, if you're a young person coming out. Um, but I suppose now with, with social media, with the internet, you know, there's, there's much greater opportunity to connect with supportive people. So whether you're an adult or a child, you know, a supportive person is, is now just a click away. Um, and even if that's a supportive person in total anonymity, you know, that feeling of acceptance, of connection, of someone, of belonging is, is really key. So it would be, I'm not going to press people, whether you're an adult or a young person, to, to come out because I, talk, I spoke against that coming out imperative earlier. But I think there is a real need to feel a sense of belonging. And you don't have to do that with people you know immediately, you know, but actually recognizing that the isolation is really hard to deal with i think is 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 it's not it might not necessarily be your sexuality that's hard to deal with but the isolation that you're psychologically experiencing from others and if you can take a step towards bridging a gap even if it is with someone you don't know and it's anonymously i think that can be a really important factor for your well-being and resilience yeah, and on that note, for, for those people that don't have a sort of friend or family member that they can turn to, there are links on a, on the website as to organisations people can go to uh, anonymously or otherwise, because I think just talking about somebody else really does help you go through that whole, what I still say is a difficult process of coming out, regardless of how old you are. Yeah, it doesn't end, does it? You know, you don't, you don't just come out once. You, you, you come out multiple times in multiple different ways. So it's a, it's a thing that you can develop skills in, but sometimes you're still blindsided by, you know, by that process. Well, Dan, I've really loved our chat. I, I really appreciate you sharing sort of your personal experience, but also your sort of professional insight into the topic as well. So thank you very much. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you did, please rate, review and subscribe and get in touch with us via Twitter or Instagram or through the website. <laughs>